God knows you more than I do, more than Jay does, more than your parents do. And he still loves you. I had this car that I bought when I was in high school. It seems so long ago. 16 years old, and I bought a 1998 red Mustang convertible. And I thought buying that car, I was going to get a lot of attention. Not in a good way, right? Maybe some affection, right? I thought it was the best purchase I had ever made in my life. So let me just tell you about the details of how that went down. I went to car lot. It was a used car lot. I'm not that old, by the way. It was like a 10-year-old car at the time, all right? So the, 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 the used car salesman walked me around and my dad around the car, and he showed us all the things this red 1998 Mustang convertible had to offer. It was beautiful, in my opinion. You know, it wasn't that great. It was a V6. It wasn't a V8. It didn't have like the GT or whatever you call it. It had power windows. That's about it, right? Well, a few weeks later, after buying the car, I'm showing it off to all my friends. I was a cross-country runner in high school at a very devoted high school to cross-country. It's a cross-country program. So we would run, and I kid you not, about 364 days of the year at 6 a.m. every day. And so I would wake up at 5.30. I had to get there by 6 a.m. It was a small town. It doesn't take very long to get there. And one morning it had rained. Well, it rained the night before the morning. And, uh, and so I got real good sleep. I roll out of bed. I'm, I'm groggy. Uh, I put my, I slept in socks. I put my like slides on because I'm looking real cool, right? And I go to get in my car, which had been sitting outside. My parents had nicer cars there in the garage. And I get inside my car, I sit down, and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm tired, but I know I feel something weird. Well, my socks were soaking wet. I learned that day that my car leaked bad, like fishbowl leaked, right? There was about five inches of water in that car that morning, all right? Let me tell you something. The car dealer had that car for a while. It had rained a few times, I am sure, at the car dealership. And yet he did not tell me, did not tell my father any problem with that car. Why? Because he feared if we knew its shortcomings, if we knew its flaws, if we knew its problems, if we knew where it fell short, we would not buy that car. Right? Furthest thing from it, we'd like step out the other way and leave the car dealership. My fear in this room for so many of you, if you do not know Jesus, is that you fear if God really, really knew you, he'd want nothing to do with you. Nothing. And yet this is love. Not that we love God, a good reminder from John, but that God loved us. God knows you and still loves you. And he proved it by buying your freedom with his own blood. What the word propitiation means? Here's what it means. God is a just God. He must punish sin. And sin is our nature. And so he punishes sinners. God is a just God, and he will punish sinners. But God is also a merciful God. I know he loves you, because 2,000 years ago, he sent Jesus. And Jesus, walking to Calvary in the place that he would be pierced for our sin, was mocked and scorned and slandered by those, according to Acts chapter 2, he died for. 
What does Peter say? You killed Jesus. Some of them were actually there shouting, we want Barabbas, you crucify him. And so Jesus knew who he was dying for was the very people he would save a few, a few months later. God was a just God. He must punish sin. And you know what? He did. He did. 2,000 years ago, God's wrath was poured out on his son, Jesus. And here's the beautiful message of the gospel. You will face the punishment of your sin unless you believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And if you believe upon him, Acts chapter 2 says you will be saved. And you know what that means? You will never face the punishment of your sin. Yeah, there will be consequences of your sin in this life, but you won't face the punishment of your sin forever because Jesus already has in your place. Done. What did he say? It is finished. Jesus knew upon that cross the sin that you struggled with before you put your faith in him, the sin that you're struggling with when you put your faith in him, and the sin you will continue to struggle with until he calls you home and he still died. That's not my message, but you need to know that. So that anybody in this room who doesn't believe in Jesus might tonight put your faith and trust in him. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know But that does not mean if you trust in Jesus that sin will not be a factor anymore in your life. You're well aware that your old nature still fights for your attention, for your affections, for your allegiance. And so Jesus, in talking to his disciples, teaches us how to pray because we are his disciples now if you've believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, pray like this. And the passage that I've been given tonight is verse 13, and he says this, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Might that be the prayer of Jesus' disciples, knowing now that sin led Christ to the cross and that it leads to our own destruction. May God, you not lead us to where we would go if you had not changed our life. Now, this is an interesting phrase, lead us not into temptation. I'm going to have to use notes here, okay? This is an interesting phrase, lead us not into temptation. Does that mean that God leads people into temptation? Well, James 1.13 says absolutely not. In fact, no one can say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God tempts no one. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what are we praying for if we follow Jesus' example? What are we praying for when we say, lead us not into temptation? If God does not do that. Well, I'm going to give you the answer really fast. And I'm sure I can give you a longer answer than this. But you don't have to wait for the answer. Here it is. I would argue that the best understanding of this text in modern terms might be God Don't let us go back to our former ways. Don't let us give in. And when it says deliver us from evil, please don't give up on us either. Don't give up on us. This is a prayer of a heart that is broken over sin. A heart that knows the depths and darkness and destruction that sin causes. That knows what it means to live a life without Christ and the joy that he provides following him. 
God does not and will not lead you into temptation. That's your own doing, but you certainly, I certainly need his help keeping from it. So we pray, God, don't let me go down the path I would walk without you. Don't let me stray and keep me from the temptation that will kill my soul. So God, our prayer is don't let us give in or maybe even God, don't give up on us. Let me give you just a brief definition of sin that I've used for, for some time now with students. Here it is. Sin is, and this is really, you could summarize it just by saying disobeying God, but it's, it's not just that, because if you look at the book of Isaiah, in some sense, the people in Isaiah are obeying God because they're going through the motions of the sacrifices he could commanded them. But he says, all that worship's totally worthless to me. So let me give you a definition of sin that might be helpful. Here it is. Sin is devaluing God in your heart, disobeying God in your actions, or desiring anything opposed to God's design in your mind, leading to division between you and God in life and damnation after death. Sin is serious. Temptation, the moment before we give in to the sin that seems in a moment to satisfy so much, temptation is the moment where we count the cost before we believe the lie that there is more to be gained in disobeying God than obeying him. Temptation is that moment before we give in. I want to talk to you about something real fast. So, so my wife and I, I'm 29, I'm almost 30, right? I know I look younger than I can't grow a beard if I tried, all right? My wife and I were married eight years ago, no, almost eight years ago. And that was one of the best days of my life. It was incredible. It was all that we had hoped for, all that we dreamed about as far as the ceremony goes. And aside from the occasional argument together, I mean, like, I don't know if she'd agree, but I feel like marital bliss, right? Aside from salvation, hand to God, aside from salvation, my wife is the greatest gift God has ever given me. Our wedding ceremony was beautiful. We were surrounded by people that we loved and people who loved us. I had the very best of friends from high school and college, join with us on that day. It was special. Friends that I had grown up with, attended youth group with, confessed sin to, and called me to confess my sin when they knew what I was struggling with. Friends that I actually went to um, classes with to learn Greek and Hebrew, to study the Bible, and actually to be a pastor. They were standing beside me that day, some of them groomsmen, some of them ushers, and some of them, actually about half of them, Joined in with a little band on our wedding day to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which is one of my favorite songs. Before the ceremony, I got a picture of all these guys together, and I think it's going to be on the screen. I spent some time looking at that picture when I prepared this message. What a good memory. I want to ask you to keep that picture up there for just a minute, and I want to tell you about a man from the Old Testament. His name's King Solomon. King Solomon was David's son. An incredible leader. In fact, what is said of King Solomon is there is no man nor has ever been man wiser, of course, than Jesus. Than King Solomon. It was probably thought of King Solomon when he was rising to power. And as he was growing the people of Israel and as he had built the temple and the temple had kind of fallen, or sorry, the Lord had kind of filled the temple with his presence 
when all the people were not lacking anything, in fact, they were happy. That maybe Solomon is that one to come who's going to crush the head of the snake. Maybe it's him. Maybe he's the promised one. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the Savior of all of Israel. Maybe it's him. In fact, in his life, when the Lord fills the temple with his presence, Solomon leads this great worship service, and he actually leads the people around him in confessing sin. What a leader they had in Solomon. And if you read about King Solomon's life, you can do so beginning at first chapter, first Kings chapter one through first Kings chapter 10. But in first Kings chapter 11, the author that had hidden something reveals something. For in first Kings 11, we learn that over time, Solomon's hidden sin became known. We learn, I think it's in chapter five, that King Solomon, to make an alliance with Egypt and with Pharaoh, he took Pharaoh's daughter. We learn later that he began to worship her gods. We learn later that he took thousands upon thousands of women to be their wives. And maybe he had a good excuse. Maybe, you know, you know why, would not, why, why would God not want to grow his kingdom? And these are alliances. And one way you have alliances is you actually just marry the wife of another king. Why would God not want to grow his kingdom? And so on and on and on he went. And it got to the point in chapter 11 where it says he began to make altars for these guys. No one would have expected that. In fact, you know what it says? One of the gods that he worshipped along with one of his wives was Molech. Historians believe that Molech, to to, to worship Molech, one of the, the, the worship services included child sacrifice. So here's my question to you. What happened? What happened? What happens in the life of a person where they go from serving the Lord and leading others to do so to seemingly abandoning God altogether? And, and I mean, how do we look for it in ourselves? And how do we look out for it in others? I told you that when I prepared this sermon, I stared at this picture. Because when I look at this picture, I don't just see a bunch of guys that were involved in my wedding that I grew up with, that I went to church with, that called me out and sin in my life. I see five guys who no longer follow Jesus. Billy, Adam, Truett, Christian, and Michael. Three of those guys' plans were to go into ministry. One of them was a youth pastor at the time we took this picture. And one of them had just actually led a conference leading worship for a church that I was serving in. What happened? Well, I may just be 29 going on 30, but here's what I've learned in the last 10 years of life and vocational ministry. A person rarely, if ever, rarely abandons their faith because they believe themselves to have found both a credible and comprehensive scientific argument against Christianity and its claims. More often, a person abandons their faith because they want sin. And their attention, while seemingly on Christ, had been on everything he warned them of. So much so that over time, it's where their affections began to grow, where they gave attention. In fact, what became their ambition and eventually led to a seeming shift of allegiance. What happened? It's not because of a lack of evidence that the faith they once seemed to profess is gone. It was because a continual, insistent lack of self-denial. What did Jesus say to his followers? 
If anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Why? Because he knows what sin does in the life of a person. He knows because he took the nails. Denial of God often begins where denial of self ends. Then as affections grow for sin, finding any sort of ideology or any sort of coherent argument or finding any sort of church or Christian that has done wrong becomes for them a reason they might try to justify sin or minimize their guilt until their conscience is severed. Is this not what First John says? What seemingly stole my friend's heart was in there for quite some time. Their hearts were divided. First Kings chapter 11, his heart was divided. Some of you, your hearts are divided today, tonight, right now. You're back and forth considering the pleasure of disobedience and the value of obedience. And it is my plea with you, knowing sin's effect in my friends' lives, to not believe that there is more to be gained in disobeying God than obeying Him. Talking to you believers, there's not more to be gained. Listen to me for just a moment about temptation. Temptation is not merely the battle to not sin. It is the battle first to believe God. To take Him at His word that his ways are good, that what he has given you is enough, and that the cost of sin far exceeds its worth. I say this with students all the time. Temptation is the brief but significant moment of evaluation between what God has given you and what he is keeping you from. In other words, it's the brief but significant moment of, is he enough? Is what he's given me enough? And is what he's keeping me really that bad? Is it really that bad? It seems like he's holding out on me. I mean, look back at the garden. Was that not the exact problem? Did God really say, in fact, this looks really good. He's keeping you from it. Wisdom, you could have it. You're not going to die. Temptation is the brief but significant moment of evaluation between what God has given you and what he's keeping you from. Don't buy the lie that sin can satisfy and that Christ is not enough. A lot of people would trade in a lot of things for gold, but every day people give up their joy, their families, their jobs, their kids, and their livelihoods for fool's gold. And the exchange is not worth it. So how do you battle for belief, if you will. Because most of the phrases in the Lord's Prayer are God, are, 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 are requests to God, like your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Knowing that being empowered with His Spirit, our calling is to show God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are blessed to know now that the Lord has sent His Spirit empowering us to not give in in a particular moment of temptation. Now, will you ever be sinless? First John would say, you're a liar if you say you are. Danny Aiken says quite humorously, but you can certainly sin less. For your joy. 
So battle for belief and battle for joy. How do you do that? Well, I just want to give you as practically as I can. I think I have six. I had five this morning. I've got six now. Six ways that you might make war and battle for joy. Why do I say make war? Because this is where you and I cannot play a passive role. God commands us in the book of Colossians to, and I'll quote this, put to death what is therefore earthly in you. This is what ancient theologians have called mortification. Mortify, to kill. Put to death what is earthly in you. And you list a few sins, which characterize sometimes even our own lives. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. May it not be named among you. Galatians 5 and James 4 describe our passions as waging war within us so that we do not obey Christ. But we must abstain from the passion of our flesh, Galatians 5, because the war war is for our soul. So make war. Make war. War against your old self, if you will. Battle for belief. Six ways. Number one, and this may sound counterintuitive. Number one, run away. Run away. Let me read for you a few verses. First Peter chapter 5, it tells us we have an adversary. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's talking to believers here who are exiles awaiting Christ's return. Remember, the devil is looking for you. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What's the command? Be watchful. Keep your mind alert. Why? Because Satan is looking to allure you towards sin, to cause you to slowly abandon your allegiance to Christ and destroy the hope you have by devouring you in sin. I, I, I get asked as a, a 29-year-old college and student pastor, okay, what am I watching right now on like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or Peacock or Paramount Plus or whatever the new thing is, all right? Truth be told, I don't have that much time right now. Everybody says that, right? But I really don't. Like, I've got two kids, and they're crazy, right? So um, they end up in our bed somehow in the middle of every night. We don't even wake up anymore. So, like, we just watch reruns of, like, old Office episodes or something like that. But anyways, okay. So we rerush the shows. But I think there's a tendency, even amongst Christians, to feel the need above all else to be relevant. To the extent that we understand and are in the know of anything and everything that's being played. Maybe that's funny video on TikTok that is just, I mean, outright objectifying. That's a new series that's come out and there's just like straight up nudity the whole thing. I'll just say this, and and I know I sound like the guy that's going to harp on some things here, but listen. If you are consistently being entertained by what God finds evil, it's a short road to ruin. If I find myself entertained by something that includes incest, sexual perversion, and horrific violence, is Jesus pleased? And if not, who is? The lion. And I'm not talking about the lion of the tribe of Judah here. 
The one who wants to delude you into thinking that consistent small steps of disobedience won't eventually devour you. I've seen so many people play with a lion like it's a cat, thinking it won't kill him. We have a, a gentleman uh, uh, who, who lived in this remarkable home, kind of looked like a small version of Plant Hall across the street from where I get to serve, right? Minarets and kind of weird-looking building, right? And he actually had gorillas. Now, I'm not actually making that up. Now, that might be like some kind of like, maybe not a gorilla or anything. I don't know, but like big animals, okay, right? They had a lot of hair and, okay, right? So he had gorillas. I think they were gorillas. And so actually before service and after service, you would hear them make the gorilla sound. I'm not going to try to make it. It made the gorilla sound. And, and so we would, terribly so, uh, there was a bunch of rocks, going to toss a rock, like, can you see me? You know, that kind of thing. We weren't hurting the gorilla, just like, you know, maybe we'll make them go rah or something, you know? When I went off to college, there was a news story. That gorilla had attacked its owner. Put him in the hospital. The owner's alive, but put him in the hospital. I share this illustration with another guy. The story of the gorilla is true. But the illustration goes along like this. Over time, the owner thought that he had the gorillas managed. He had a cage. He played with the gorillas in the right way. He fed them the right kind of food. And he thought that, you know, it wouldn't eventually attack. But what do gorillas do? Well, that's what they kind of do, right? I mean, they sit on you and you're dead, right? So, um, so he attacked. And some of us think we have our sin managed in a similar way. We put it in its cage. We only bring it out when it's necessary or when no one else is around so it won't harm anybody else maybe. We feed it. We nourish it. And we think it's not actually going to attack us when that is, in fact, what it does. So, oh yeah, I'm on my sin over here and I won't let it over here because I know, I know if, I, if I let it out too much, it'll actually harm me. All the while, it's preparing to kill. Sin is not manageable. It's not. This passage doesn't only say a lion, it says a roaring lion. I don't think that's just to comment on how loud it is, but how ferocious it is. How ferocious it is. I had the opportunity to go kayaking. Number one's the longest, by the way. I had the opportunity to go kayaking and um, not too long ago, it was like a six-hour kayak, and I've gotten used to kayaking in Florida, right? I, from Missouri, alligators are not a thing, okay? So we were in a spot on the Hillsborough River that I don't think we were supposed to be on, and so every about 40 yards, you were getting out of our kayak. We had to put them over logs. And I noticed about every 40 yards, you had to get out of your kayak. And every 40 yards, there was at least one or two alligators, right? The river was not that wide at this point. That was why the sign said, don't work. Okay. okay. And, uh, and so, um, so it's narrowing. And there's an alligator, one of the biggest ones I've seen. Now, you know alligators. So you're a Floridian. Oh, he's not, what is he talking about, right? They don't really bother you, typically, Okay. We got over the other side, and I didn't know this. It was supposedly, I guess, the guy that took me on this didn't tell me. This. It was mating season. And, and, and one of the alligators that we passed, that I was like, I'm not passing, by the way, 
Uh, I was the chicken of the, th- the three people that went. Had its mouth completely open, hissing at us. The whole way we went past it. I'm not making that up. It was basically saying, don't come here. Here's the reality in which you live. There are some particular sins that you might engage in that you know are deadly. And there's a hiss the whole time. Listen, talking about shows again, the group that rates shows and says what is in shows, that's not a Christian group. That's a hiss. I mean, you see it when you turn. This this should not be used viewer discretion advice. Some websites say, are you 18 years old? That's a hiss. Some friends of yours say, don't go out with that guy. Hiss. The noise is loud. But sometimes when the warning is right before us, we're simply not watching because the allure of sin, the allure of sin is stronger than the warning of pain. That's the battle of belief. Believe that there exists no pleasure in disobedience that's worth the pain of being devoured. Thomas said, What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure drink a sea of wrath? Number two. Number one was long. Number two. Six ways to make war. Cut off access. Cut off access. Solomon's greatest struggle was where his sexual temptation led him. And while you might not initially think we have access to the resources Solomon had, 7,000 wives, 300 concubines, we really do. Digitally. Now, talking about pornography from a pulpit, even though I don't really have a pulpit, right, does not make anyone popular. But according to a medically reviewed article updated this Sorry, updated a month ago, about 40 million American adults regularly visit pornographic sites on the internet, and every second, more than 28,000 people are watching pornography on the internet. Here's my concern. I have counseled a number of guys on this issue for a number of years, like someone counseled me a number of years ago. One of my greatest concerns is guys who say something to the effect of, I feel like it's more spiritually mature to slowly arrive at a point where I no longer want to access such things on my phone instead of making a decision where I simply can't. One sounds more mature, doesn't it? And let me say, this is not just a male problem. One in three visitors of all adult websites, according to the same website, are women. However, the Bible's prescription for reoccurring sin isn't building your own strength so you don't sin. It's cutting off access to it at whatever cost. Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown to hell. The Bible's prescription cut off access. We, we got to stop thinking that sin is just a, a stone a diminutive small stone in our shoe that might hurt us and is instead a serpent that's looking to bite. Cut off what will kill you. If not sexual temptation, still learn to say no. Prioritizing your faith is saying no to things. Prioritizing your faith family is still saying no to things. Number three, surround yourself 
surround yourself. Going back to Solomon again, one of his main problems, and I would agree with Paul Tripp on his assessment of pastors and one of their main problems when they give in to sin. Here's what he says. Surround yourself with people who are not impressed with you. Who's going to tell Solomon that he's doing wrong? The kingdom looks bigger than it's ever looked. I mean, I, I know he has some faults here, but really that's how we have so many allies. Surround yourself with someone who's not impressed with you. I would actually just tell you this. Plant yourself. I know this was in my sermon three weeks ago. Plant yourself in a local church. Plant yourself in a local church. Where a pastor will stand before God how he pastored you. Where people know that their calling, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, is to make you prepared for the day Jesus returns. Of those five guys, I'm not making this up, four of them, when they left home, never connected to a local church. Four. Billy, Christian, Adam, and Truett. Surround yourself with people who care more about you than they do confronting you and it causing some weird interaction. Number four, meditate on God's word. God's desire was not only for Solomon's prosperity as a king, but also Solomon's joy. We see him come to Solomon after Solomon had this beautiful speech calling people to obey the Lord. And he said to Solomon, and I quote, walk before me and I will establish your throne. And then like a loving father, he warns him of the severity of disobedience. This is in 1 Kings. If you walk before me with integrity and uprightness, doing what I have commanded you, I will establish your royal throne of Israel forever. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, and you go serve other gods, in other words, this house will become a heap of ruins. Listen. There is nothing to be temporarily gained outside of Christ that is of any eternal good. I'll say that again. There is nothing, nothing to be temporarily gained outside of Christ that can be of any eternal good. Hide God's word in your heart, the scripture says, that you might be reminded of his goodness and grace and see sin as a cheap imitation of the satisfaction you know you can only find in your Savior. I meet with a group of of two other guys, three guys total. We meet every Thursday. So I was there this morning. We're at Felicitas. Anybody went to Felicitas? That's a weird place, but a really good coffee place. All right. So we were meeting and we were praying together. We've been memorizing scripture together. We're memorizing Psalm 51. And I tell you, one of the deepest prayers that, well, one of the deepest requests that I had from those guys is that my prayer life would improve. I'm a type A person, right? And a lot of times I just try to keep moving and going and trying to do things in my own strength. You know what's really, really helped me? Memorizing a prayer. Psalm 51. I'm not going to quote it because I'll probably get something messed up, but I've got nine verses down. All right? Meditate on God's word. All right, we got to keep moving. Confess your... No, I didn't. I'm five. Sorry. Nope. Got to go back to five. Seek the Lord. What are we even praying? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Where do you go when you're tempted to sin? You go before your father. 
and say, help. God, don't let me give in. And maybe even God, don't give up on me. I know your promises say you won't. Don't. When people are distant from those they love, it becomes much easier to deny them. I know I keep telling you sad story after sad story. My best friend's dad left his family two years ago. He had a a job, and, and I'm not saying the job led to it, but he had a job where he was gone six days of the week. Slept somewhere else six days of the week. And over time, it had become easier to not deny the family because he never was around them. Number six, and lastly, and please do not miss this. Confess your sin. Sounds counterintuitive again, doesn't it? Because we're talking about battling temptation. Let me say this. Even if you give in, seeking the Lord is still my encouragement to you. Because losing the battle is not losing the war. Losing the war simply looks like not ever going to Jesus for forgiveness. Not ever going to Jesus for forgiveness. What do we do if we give in? Let's look at 1 John and be encouraged. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believer in the room and even unbeliever in the room, this is for you. Jesus is willing to forgive everything. The question is, are you willing to go to him now? My son is five years old and... He is finally understanding what it means to trespass his father. Now, he was born with a proclivity to sin. I would tell him when he was two or three years old not to touch the the little outlet. And if you think that him touching the outlet doesn't actually prove anything, he looked at me to make sure I wasn't watching him when he touched the outlet, right? But now that he's five years old, he knows his sin. And when confronted, what does he do? He runs, shuts his door, and hides. What do I tell my son? Son, don't run. I love you. What did Adam and Eve do? They ran and they hid and they tried to cover themselves from God. What did God do? Where are you at? As if you didn't know. What have you done? As if you didn't know. How kind our loving father is. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That may sound harsh, but listen to me. It's more refreshing than you think. Because it removes pretense as if we can act like we don't sin. And it kills pride. For one thing, the cross makes clear is that God is a good Savior And you are a sinner. Or else why would he be there? If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It removes pretense and kills pride, but it also does one more thing and I'm done. It reminds us who Jesus came for. Why do I say that? Jesus made very, very clear to a group of people 
when he was walking the earth, he said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance as if there were people who actually were righteous. Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite authors. I've only read one book by him, but it's like my favorite book, so I can say that. He says this, an old Puritan wrote the book called The Bruised Reed. He's commenting on Isaiah 49, and he says this, Why do you fear to go to God? Is it your sin when he came for sinners? Be of good courage. You are why he hung. He says, take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ. He is eager and willing to receive all who come to him with a heart broken over this sin. He never tires, never tires of the person repentant. Never. And he never runs out of forgiveness for those who seek him. Do you need to seek him? Do you need him? Might you need tonight to turn from sin? Might you not need tonight to battle for belief? There is... Nothing to be gained from disobeying Christ and eternity to be gained from obeying him. An abundant life even here following his ways. Would you go before him now with that great comfort that he's come for you?